Hello, I'm Parker Moss and I'm the Chief Commercial Officer at Genomics England and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. Today, we're going to be discussing genomics and really how sequencing works in the real world. We talk a lot about and hear a lot about sequencing in the popular press, on TV. So today I have Greg Elgar, the Director of Sequencing at Genomics England, to come in and tell us what really happens behind the scenes. Welcome to The G Word. Greg, welcome to The G Word. Thank you, Parker. So a little bit of background on Greg himself. Greg completed his PhD in the Sydney Bremer lab in Cambridge in 1990. And of course, Sydney was one of the famous Nobel laureates and founders of the genomic revolution. Greg remained at Hinkston from 1996 to 2005, where he did the whole genome comparative analysis on the famous human genome project. Uh, then Greg went on to uh, lead advanced sequencing, the advanced sequencing facility at the Crick Institute in London. And finally, Greg joined Genomics England um, as the director of all of our sequencing, where he's been with us since 2018 and has run the sequencing for one of the largest genomic sequencing programs in the world, the 100,000 Genome Project. So Greg, it's a real honor and we're delighted to have you here. Welcome. So Greg, let's just go a little bit back in history and hear really what it felt like to be at the beginning of this genomic revolution. Uh, Perhaps you can take us back to Cold Spring Harbor and some of those early meetings where you you were rubbing shoulders with people like James Watson and Eric Lander back in those days. Tell us what it was like in those early days of sequencing. Yeah, it was a real adventure. And I was really fortunate to be a tiny junior part of that. So I had joined Sydney's lab in uh, 1990, the beginning of 1990, and uh, quickly registered for a PhD. Sydney was uh, always someone who was looking uh, at ways to extract the most useful information from genomes. So he was very interested initially in looking at transcriptomics, but he also was interested in comparative genomics. So. His um, idea for my PhD was for me to look at um, a, another animal. So it had a very similar set of genes, but with a much smaller genome. So he handed me essentially a bag full of uh, pufferfish tissues and said, this is your PhD, go and, uh, go and sequence it. At the same time, he was invited, it was either 90 or 91, to go to Cold Spring Harbour to start talking about um, efforts in the UK for the Human Genome Project. And then at the last minute, he couldn't make the meeting. So I'd made a little bit of progress, so he asked me to go instead. So I was thrown straight into the deep end there and ended up doing a platform presentation where everybody was expecting to see Sidney Brenner. And actually, it was just this kind of rather um, naive uh, PhD student who was talking about comparative genomics. But that was the start for me of, of this amazing series of uh, meetings at Cold Spring Harbour, which just became an annual event. And, and it, it became the, really the most important conference in, in the calendar in those days. Uh, and, and it was born out of a whole series of discussions that had taken place in, in the mid to late 80s 
largely led, I think, by um, the NIH, Francis Collins and others in, in the US, but also there were significant contributions from the UK, particularly from John Salston um, and others, who were keen that uh, the UK got involved in, in the, the effort. And, and in those days, the key bit was building the blueprint to how the human genome was going to be sequenced. You know, sequencing and even the way in which we approach sequencing was just so completely different in those days to the way it is now. That The technology was just in, in a completely different area and the rate at which we could sequence was. And that's kind of difficult to understand these days because as people step into molecular biology and genomics nowadays, the, the technology is so advanced and so far removed from what it was then that people really don't understand why it took 15 years and $3 billion to sequence a human genome. So just to put things in perspective a little bit, when I started sequencing, we were sequencing um, using radioactivity, not fluorescence. Everything was done manually. For every single small piece of DNA, we had to do four reactions. And we had to load those reactions onto a, a gel labelled with either S35 or P32. So essentially irradiating ourselves as we were loading the gels. And then we had to expose those gels um, to an autoradiograph, and then we had to manually type in the sequence as we read it off the gel. And that was the way everybody sequenced. Yeah, bear in mind, this was only 10 years on from Fred Sanger's development of the dideoxy methodology. So it was really in its infancy. And there were no automated machines in, in those early kind of mid-80s days when things were being formulated. The other thing to say is that those meetings were definitely the, the fire pit, if you like, for some quite heated debate over the way in which things should be sequenced. I, I guess the, the biggest argument that kind of fueled a lot of debate was uh, the, the kind of public versus private approaches to sequencing then. And uh, obviously, it's well known that Craig Venter joined the meetings uh, and he had he had been working at NIH but he moved and, and set up a company called Solera and Solera proposed to essentially sequence more akin to the way we sequence today in as much as just breaking up the genome into millions of tiny pieces so what, what was called shotgun sequencing in those days as opposed to the very ordered way in which the the public effort was sequencing which was taking a lot longer, but was a, a much more organised way of sequencing uh, genomes at the time. And, and it was kind of thought for a number of years that the public approach was going to be the only approach. And it was only when Craig Venter proposed doing this through a company and potentially um, selling the data, making it private and selling it, that the public effort really had to kind of get things together and, and accelerate what they were doing. So, so Craig Venter's intervention was actually really quite fortuitous and cut a number of years off the time it took to get to a, a draft human genome. There were, there were lots of politics involved, lots of debates. I remember when Craig Venter actually got up on the Cold Spring Harbour platform and started talking about it. Um, you could see people in the audience were just fuming. I, I remember John Selston getting up afterwards and, and putting the kind of public uh, effort side of things and, and there being a lot of debate. And that really spilled over for the whole meeting that year and, and potentially, I think, into the next meeting where people started showing their data.
But it was a really exciting time. <laughs> it was fun. Thank you for sharing that history. It is an incredible time, and it's amazing to think that so many of those critical meetings happened really in, in Long Island in New York, where I believe um, James Watson actually still lives uh, near campus. Um, and uh, what I really want to give our, our listeners a sense of by hearing that history from you is um, that we're speaking today with someone who was in at the opening of this revolution and has seen all of the the uh, different generations of sequencing technology up until um, what is happening uh, in, in your lab today, Greg, where we're experimenting with some of the, the really novel approaches to sequencing. But let's step back now and talk about sequencing itself, because I think that um, this is a word now that has got into the popular lexicon. Uh, you hear it in, in the normal uh, press. Uh, people talk about sequencing as if it's a, a straightforward and well-understood science. But in truth, very few people, I think, in society and even many doctors don't really understand what sequencing involves. And I'd love to kind of follow the tissue from a biopsy from a human patient all the way through to a sequencing lab. And for you to just explain, Greg, you know, what happens at each step and try to make, um, really try to kind of demystify this this whole process from, from the start. So why don't we start with the with, with sequence itself and with, with a biopsy. Um, we'll start with a cancer patient. So a cancer patient, we can, we can imagine um, a child with neuroblastoma or an adult with a sarcoma, and they go into surgery, uh, a biopsy is taken from that patient. Can you start us off from there, Greg? What, what happens next? Yeah, of course. Um, and, and there are kind of two different routes. So there, there is the biopsy route and then there's the, the, the surgical reception of a, of a tumour route. Um, and both are, are quite different and have different challenges associated with them. But the, the fundamental key to this is that uh, historically, the tumour or the biopsy is taken for a pathologist to do cell and a microscopy work on, to look at the, the structures and to identify um, the extent of the type of tumour to a degree. And because of that, any, any tissue that's extracted through biopsy or through resection tends to be uh, put into a preservative that allows the structure of that tissue to be preserved. And, and that's traditionally been formalin or formalin-related uh, fixatives. And, and unfortunately, those are quite damaging to DNA and they induce uh, certain changes in, in, in the base structure of the DNA which means that the that any subsequent sequencing is actually really quite problematic and, and often um, error strewn. And, and actually, a lot of early work done at Genomics England in the 100,000 Genomes Project compared the data from FFP and from um, tissue that was fresh frozen and showed that the quality of sequence from fresh frozen tissue is so much better and more accurate. So the, what we're, we've been working with pathologists and clinicians and surgeons um, throughout the 100,000 Genomes Project and beyond now, we're, we're trying to re-energise that area to, to look at the best practice and the best way, both to be able to serve the pathologist, because the pathologist still needs to look at the tissue, um, but also to provide material that is optimal for um, the extraction of high-quality DNA so that that can then move forward to sequencing. So there are certainly some um, surgeons who are highly appreciative of this and will actually resect, take out um, uh, tumour tissue and immediately split it and put some into a fixative and then freeze the, the remainder. And that can be done with 
in, even in, in the uh, uh, operating theatre, for example, with liquid nitrogen or in a, in a lab with liquid nitrogen. And there are various other fixatives that could be used. And we're, we're looking at those at Genomics England with clinicians, which would not be so harsh on the DNA would allow us to then extract DNA from it. Thank you, Greg. So you zeroed in on what we call the somatic sequence. So this is a portion of the tumour, the cancer itself, uh, which we sequence. But in cancer, of course, we actually do two sequences of the patient. We take the germline as well as the somatic so that a comparison can be made. So can you just explain uh, to our lay listeners um, the difference between germline and somatic and how and how those are, are handled from the surgical lab and then through to pathology? Yeah, so this is really key, actually, because as I think is probably widely known now, um, all of our genomes are different. We all have lots of variation within them. Uh, and we have certainly have thousands and millions, in fact, of variants within our genome that makes your genome, Parker, different to mine. And they have nothing to do with uh, cancer. They are simply differences associated with our heritage and our ancestry, and also, uh, to a degree, our own individualism. So what we need to do when we're looking at cancer is to be able to identify those variants, those, those differences in the genome that are like more likely to be causative or involved in the cancer than just variation in the background. So we need to take a a sample from the individual that we're extracting tumour DNA from, which represents, if you like, their normal healthy DNA. So we call it their germline DNA because it's the the DNA. It's it's actually a slight misnomer, but it's the DNA that looks most similar to the DNA we had at birth, the DNA that we started with. And, And so generally speaking, for any uh, solid tumour within the body that's localised to a certain area, we tend to um, take a, a blood draw as well from that individual, and then we can extract DNA from the white blood cells in, in, in the blood, and that will serve, if you like, as our reference genome or our germline genome. And then the other g- genome comes from the tumour, and that we then do some clever um, bioinformatic subtraction so that we remove those variants from the tumour that are not likely to be causative. Okay, that is clear. Thank you. So like so many areas of science, there is a baseline, the germline, and then we look at changes to that baseline through analysing the somatic uh, tissue. So um, you've mentioned a couple of times DNA extraction, but tell us, how does that actually work? How do you extract DNA from human tissue? Yeah, of course. So the, the principle of DNA extraction is, is very straightforward. In practice, it, it can be very variable. So uh, in principle, what you need to do is remove the uh, cell membranes and proteins from uh, around the nucleus, and, and that liberates the DNA, uh, so the chromosomal DNA. And then the, the second step really is simply to isolate that DNA, DNA away from any contaminants. And those contaminants include a number of enzymes in the cell that actually can be quite damaging to the DNA. So there are specific enzymes that actually um, degrade DNA because that's part of the, the cell cycle. DNA gets degraded when it's not used anymore. So we use certain techniques and there are a whole wide variety now of kits from manufacturers that aid in the extraction of that extraction process. But again, going back to um, when I was doing my PhD and, and, and postdocing, a lot of that was done. There were some kits around, but a lot of that was done manually. 
we used to use some pretty hazardous chemicals, actually things like phenol and chloroform, to do those extractions. But it is a fairly straightforward thing. And in fact, um, I think that's probably exemplified by the fact that one of the very first really truly exciting biology practicals kids might do at school is extracting and spooling DNA on a glass rod because they just use the uh, charge of DNA to attract it to a positively charged silicon rod. And, and that's how easy it can be to, to pull DNA out. Well, perhaps I'm too old, but I never did that at school. I wish I had. It sounds uh, fascinating. I'll make sure my daughters do do that experiment. So, right, we've once we've extracted DNA, um, that DNA goes to a plating facility. And in England, we, we have seven centralised plating facilities in these genomic lab hubs. What does DNA plating involve and what does it mean? Yes, so there's a couple of critical steps, actually. So the first is especially when we are looking at generating high-quality sequence for healthcare. The, the, the real key here is this is not a research project. This is actually dealing... Every single sample is absolutely critical because it represents a patient. And, and that's the difference between, you know, on a research project, if you, have, if you want to sample 1,000 samples, what you usually do is start with 1,200 samples because you know that during the process, probably a couple of hundred are going to fail. You can't afford to do that in healthcare. You've got to make sure that every sample is treated as, as if it is the most important sample in the world, because to that patient it is. And so the, the key to this is to have good quality control steps and to make sure that the processes that you use allow you to generate um, optimal sequence data at the end. And so what the process that is used at the moment for the Genomic Medicine Service, which is based largely on the the 100,000 Genomes Project approach, is that we use a a central plating facility. So we use the Genomic Laboratory Hub to plate. And plating is where a single tube is, is transformed. The DNA is taken out of a tube and put into a well of a plate. So the the currency of of plates in in biology is on a factor of 96. So a standard plate will basically have 96 little wells in it. And in each of those wells, you place uh, a sample. And that allows that plate to then, because it's in a standard format, to enter into uh, more automated processes and more automated instruments, whereas tubes are pretty unwieldy to, to do that with. And, and so the, the key to the plating is to make sure that you put the, the same amount of DNA from different patients in each well, so that when so that from that point forwards, you can treat each well in the same way when you're generating um, what we call the library of, of sequence fragments for sequencing. And Greg, just to bring this alive to someone who's never been to a plating facility, which I expect is a vast majority of the population, how big is a 96-well plating plate? So the 96-well plates themselves are uh, about 10 centimetres by 6 centimetres. They have 96 small wells in them, which are less than a centimetre across their round wells. The plating facility doesn't have to be very large at all. It really relies on the size of the instrumentation and also the quality control instrumentation as well. As I say, quality control is key. And so at each stage of the process, you have to ensure 
that you are actually generating exactly what you're expecting to generate. So this it's essentially the size of a, of a small lab. It depends on how many samples you're processing as well. If you go to a sequencing lab at Hingston, the Illumina sequencing lab, then they have a, a very large laboratory, and but only a small kind of area is associated with the quality control and the, and the plating of those samples. Okay, so there's significant logistics already. We've taken both blood, germline, and somatic tissue from an operating theatre or a radiology lab to a, a one of seven centralised plating facilities. The DNA is extracted and plated, and then that is sent centrally um, into Genomic England's sequencing centre in Hingston in Cambridge, which is where you're based and you go every day, Greg. Um, so, so now, finally, the plates have got to the sequencing machines. Maybe you could just describe uh, what the lab looks like, uh, our, our large racks of um, Illumina NovaSeqs, and, uh, and what happens next in the process. Yeah, so, I mean, even by current lab standards, um, the, lab, the lab looks fairly uh, modern and space age. It's incredibly well organised. It's an accredited lab, which means that it, has, it gets inspected and audited and, and has to be appropriate for use in, in clinical applications. That means um, lots of uh, very careful um, regulations and uh, procedures are in place and they have to be followed to a T. It also means that there are lots of tracking systems in place which allow the management of the samples through the system. One of the disasters you absolutely have to avoid in, in these processes is to swap samples around accidentally. And so, so again, the, the whole plating system is designed that once a sample has been assigned to a particular well in a plate, that the tracking systems, the robots, everything else knows what sample is in that. So um, it takes the human error out of the equation. So that's another really good reason for using these plating systems. A lot of the uh, effort in these labs is dedicated to those processes and those procedures. So it, it, it's a very different lab to a research lab where you might not, you, you would still want to conform to good laboratory practice, of course, but you might not have all those hurdles, all those additional um, areas that, that you have to tick off before you can start processing samples. And if you go to the 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 Hingston lab, um, where Illumina do all the GMS sequencing, um, that, that's really evident from the start. So that th they separate areas, they're all carefully cordoned off, only certain people are allowed to do certain processes, they have to be properly signed off for those. So there is a huge amount of additional effort that goes into the, these kinds of laboratories to ensure that samples are where they're supposed to be. Excellent. Okay, so so far we've really talked about the the preparation um, ahead of sequencing itself and the logistics to get um, blood and tissue from humans into our sequencing lab in Cambridge. Now, what I'd like to do is get a little bit more into the science of how sequencing itself works. And today, the paradigm, the technology that we use, which was uh, an Illumina acquisition of Selexa technology, which was of course created in Cambridge, UK, um, is sequencing by synthesis. Uh, now, this is quite complicated to explain, so I'd ask you to do your, your best, Greg, to explain what happens inside these sequencing machines and how do we get this exquisite and very high quality resolution uh, base calling from, from human tissue 
using the sequencing biosynthesis methodology? So I think that the key to this is that every stage in the process and everything that's engineered into a sequencing instrument has to be very precise and accurate. And if you can, you also need to use uh, as accurate a chemistry as possible. And if you combine good chemistry and good engineering, what you end up with is uh, a machine similar to the machines that, are, that Illumina run at our sequencing centre. So um, how does sequencing work? Well, uh, the key to Illumina sequencing is that it is a sequencing by synthesis. Now, what that means is that rather than just reading a sequence that is in a tube, because that, that's quite difficult to do, although we'll come to that later. Um, another way of doing it, and, and it is based on um, really way back to Fred Sanger's uh, diterminator chemistry in the 70s, it is sequencing by chemical reaction, by addition of a sequence uh, base. And that is because um, the way that DNA is organised, it is essentially double-stranded in its native form. And the two strands um, are complementary to each other, which means that if you um, present a single strand of DNA and you then prime it with something, so you, you just start the sequencing going, then the copying of that strand to form the second strand is, is highly uh, reproducible and highly um, accurate. Uh, because essentially what you're doing is you're, you're trying to, as, as much as you can, mimic the way that nature does that sequencing. Now, in order to be able to tell what base is being added, then you need to have some signal that comes off. And so the, the way that most sequencing approaches work to date, most of the established sequencing methods, they use um, a, a fluorescent signal that allows you to determine whether an A, a C, a G, or a T, which are the four fundamental bases in the DNA, has been added. And this is where the engineering comes in. What you then need is a very sensitive camera to read and, and detect those fluorescent signals. So the key um, technological advancement um, over the last 10 years that has allowed us to increase the, the amount of sequencing we can get from a particular machine is that the, the resolution at which we can do these reactions has increased massively. And going back to what we were talking about plating and uh, um, the, what the plates look like, having 96 wells, uh, if you look at the substrate on which the sequencing is carried out for Illumina sequencing, essentially that is... It's it's more like a glass slide, but it essentially has millions and millions, in fact, uh, approaching billions, I believe, of uh, tiny, tiny nanowells in there. So tiny little wells. And, and in each of those wells, you attach to the surface um, a molecule that will allow you to capture strands of DNA. And so within that well, you capture a strand of DNA 
And then that strand of DNA on the machine now is, is amplified. So because you have a whole lawn of little capture molecules within that well, you can then amplify that single captured piece of DNA many times so that that little nano well contains essentially what we call a clone. Um, so it contains the same stretch of DNA many represented many, many times. And that allows a much greater signal to be released when you're sequencing than if you just have one molecule in there on its own, where the, the, um, the signals simply wouldn't be detectable. You mentioned this word, the, a lawn, and if you were to look at this uh, under a microscope, it really does look like a lawn, doesn't it, with lots of little strands um, plugged into these uh, wells in a very kind of ordered process and then, and then amplified. That's right, yeah. And it, it's become, the reason that the, the throughput has become so high is because, again, precision manufacturing of these, what we call them flow cells, a bit like a giant glass microscope slide, the precision engineering of these has allowed these tiny wells to be placed really very close to, to together in, in a very ordered patterned fashion. Previously, on the older versions of the sequencing, they, they weren't patterned, so uh, it was just a random lawn, and it wasn't so easy to get the high resolution and high density that you can now. So that, that's been a real development. So a, a very tidy lawn, and normally, whether it's in biology or physics, when you mention the word amplification, you get non-linearity of amplification, and that would clearly be a, a challenge for sequencing. So how, how do we manage amplification and make sure that it is linear across the whole genome? So that's a good question. It's, it's a real challenge, and, and actually is more associated with the way in which you produce your, your library. Now, so, so in order to sequence whole chromosomes, they are obviously far too long to do in one go. We couldn't attach something so incredibly long to a tiny uh, substrate. So we chop it up into very small pieces. And this is the shotgun strategy I was alluding to earlier. And that allows us to place every single small piece of the genome on these lawns. Now, the, the, there are various approaches to doing that when you're making your library, and that's the key point. How do you make that library? There are a number of different methods, but one of the most tried and tested is to shear, shear that library, so break it, break the DNA into small fragments using ultrasound. So that's one way that, that it's done. There are enzymatic approaches as well, um, which allow you to put small tags randomly into the genome and break it up into small pieces that way. And there, there are other enzymatic approaches as well. They are not all random. And uh, one of the real challenges is to get even coverage across uh, a whole genome, a whole set of chromosomes. And there are some regions that may be slightly more recalcitrant to that than, than others. In terms of when you're breaking up things into small fragments, there are regions of the genome that you can break up into small fragments, but then because you've broken them up into such small fragments, you, you can't put them together easily because they look so similar to other small fragments. But that's coming on to structural variation and the analysis, and let, let's move on to that later, but I just want to make sure we, we complete this metaphor of, of this lawn, which I think is quite helpful. So you've chopped up um, the, the DNA in these wells into, into precise 
uh, fixed length strands, we've kind of planted this uh, very even lawn in a very even plating system so that so there's a, a flow cell, so that there's a very kind of a smooth and ordered lawn. Um, and then we've amplified it so um, so that there's that there is more of this lawn essentially um, and then and then there is the fluorescent process that you uh, alluded to before where we we bounce light off that lawn to, to measure the bases and we yes we we do that um, and that's the key sequencing by synthesis part where we actually add lots of um, individual bases to essentially regenerate the sequence that's on the lawn and as we regenerate faithfully that sequence on the lawn, and we incorporate uh, fluorescent bases at each stage so that we can determine um, which base has been added at each stage of adding the, the sequence. So it, it is, I think, incredible to most lay people um, that this can happen in um, such a repeatable and produce reproducible uh, level on such small scale segments of, uh, of DNA. Um, and just to give us a sense of the exquisite accuracy of this process, um, what kind of accuracy figures are we getting for kind of SNV calling from, from a sequencer today? So uh, we we tend to use a, a quality score, and that relates to the likelihood that you have an error. And we we tend to look for error rates of less than one in ten thousand. That that's a good error score. There is certainly um, a move to generate a sequence of even higher quality, perhaps one in a hundred thousand error rate, but. Uh, certainly one in 10,000 is, is the, the achievable at the moment. One of the ways we achieve that high accuracy score is through repeated sequencing. And that's where you introduce this concept of coverage that we talk about um, in our field. So Genomics England uh, uh, resequenced the germline tumour at about 30 times coverage. So we sequence it 30 times and our somatic tissue is between 70 and 100 coverage. So if you could just explain explain that coverage concept and what it means. Yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, there, there is an error rate inherent in any process, and, and even when the error rate is small, when you're dealing with a genome that contains 3 billion pieces of information, if you have an error rate of 1 in 10,000, that means there's still quite a number of errors if you only generate one copy, uh, just by dividing 3 billion by 10,000. So in order to ameliorate against that, we, we don't just sequence one genome. We sequence the genome a number of times. Obviously, when we extract DNA, that DNA, which um, is you know, a reasonable amount of DNA, as I say, you can actually see it sometimes if you spool it around a, a, a glass wall. That contains millions of molecules of DNA. So we, we essentially take um, a, a number of genomes, identical genomes, and, and we sequence those and, and we sequence them until we find that we are covering every single base across the genome, every single position across the genome, a number of times. And, and the magic number that, that is generally used and has been used is 30 times. Now, um, there are some kind of some sound mathematical reasons for doing that, but it's also um, it's become a bit of a kind of folklore number. Um, and it's probably true that for some applications and as we improve accuracy you could probably reduce that coverage however you, you made a good point uh, Parker there that we actually cover tumor 
um, at a much higher coverage. So why do we do that? There, there are a couple of reasons, actually. So the, the first is that when we extract a tumour or when a surgeon extracts a tumour or we take a biopsy, um, that is rarely a pure population of cancer cells. So you have a mixture of cells in there. So there are other cells um, which are not cancerous around the cancer cells. The cancer cells tend to grow around other cells. And so we're not taking pure cancer genomes when, when we extract that DNA. So we have to make an allowance for that. Again, it's why the extraction process, sorry, the subtraction process uh, with the germline DNA is important because we can identify which are likely to be germline and which are not. But the other reason is that, as Charlie so beautifully described, and I wouldn't even try to go into that area, uh, cancer cancers evolve, tumours evolve, different regions within the tumour evolve. It's, it's a very dynamic process. I mean, it is incredibly uh, crippling, but, but cancer is it really is a disease of the genome. It, it's, it's a disease that is constantly attacking the genome and, and causing issues. And, 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 and the more it does that, the more it, it, it degrades the genome further. And, and so depending on what stage of tumour or, or what kind of or piece of the tumour we get, we're not sure, you know, we, we need that higher coverage to make sure that we identify important key mutations. So I think what is really interesting to our listeners, and particularly people affected by cancer themselves or, uh, uh, or with family members affected by cancer, is the care and diligence that is done all the way from um, the kind of physical logistics of getting labelled and, and identified uh, samples into the lab, and then that you will um, go to the extremes of sequencing uh, and resequencing a hundred times the somatic sequence uh, to ensure that we are catering for the, the tumor, intertumor, and intratumoral heterogeneity that you were referring to there, which can really confound a good read. So we've chopped up now through this shotgun process, or you've sheared the genome many hundreds of thousands of times to get them into these short, um, kind of ordered oligos that you plant on your on your lawn on the flow cells. Uh, you've gone through the optical process, um, which essentially. Um, releases um, di different colors of light for each of the four bases, the ACs, Gs, and Ts. Uh, and then I think you were going on previously to, to mention that you have a very high-resolution camera that picks up, pick up those, those light signals and transform them into what, Greg, what, what, what comes off these sequences. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. So well, what goes on in the sequences first is quite interesting. So Within the Illumina sequences that we use for the genomic medicine service, there is a huge amount of uh, post-processing of data that goes on within the machine. So the raw data is essentially a series of um, uh, camera visualizations at, at each base stage. And those have to be um, very carefully processed to ultimately generate a, a set of sequences. So in other words, for each position on that flow cell, it will build a what it thinks is a consensus sequence from the signals that it's, it's received. And so once it's done that, and, and this all happens essentially automatically on the machine, we extract a series of, of sequence files. And those sequence files, we, we call them FASTQ files. They contain the um, processed sequence data, so it now is in the form of A's, C's, G's, and T's, and not fluorescent signals anymore. 
And together with that, with, with each sequence on each position, there is also a, a set of quality score, scores for each of those bases. So we know what confidence we have in, in each of those. And they can be taken forward into the, the alignment as well, the mapping and the alignment of the sequence, which is the next step. So having broken all those genomes up into tiny pieces, we now have to have the painstaking job of putting them all back together. And that alignment, of course, is done with software. But what the software does is it compares the genome, that, that, that the segments of the genome that come off the machine back to the human reference genome, which, of course, is the project that you worked on uh, back at the beginning of the millennia um, in Cambridge. So maybe you could give us a concept of what this reference genome is and then, and then how we align all of these small segments back to the reference human genome. Yeah, so the, the, the reference genome is something that has been built and uh, improved and added to over many years and, in fact, is still being improved. Sequencing a genome is, is probably never completely finished. And of course, we only really have the ability to sequence uh, one genome at a time. So the reference genome was, was essentially built from actually um, a few individuals. So that represented, if you like, a, a very small consensus genome, but didn't represent your genome or my genome, not accurately, because ours are different. And so on top of, if you like, uh, the reference genome, we have um, a whole series of, of databases and information that allow us to represent how likely we are at any particular position in the genome to see a variation on that. So these are called variant allele frequencies. They are the, the variation you're likely to see across the genome. And some positions are highly constrained because uh, from evolutionary point of view, so they don't vary much, other positions vary a great deal. And those variations can be um, single nucleotide variant, variants, so variants of one position, or they can actually cover very, very large regions of the genome. And, and so uh, using a, a reference allows us to piece things together, but it's not an exact science because the genome that you are piecing together may not be incredibly close to the reference genome that you're mapping it to. And in fact, one of the programs at Genomics England at the moment is to try to increase the, the diversity of, of information we have on genomes so that we can represent a, a much wider spectrum of, of genomes and build better references in the future. So we are reassembling all of the slices that you've shared um, in the library prep process um, against the, uh, the human reference genome. Um, and we're trying to do that uh, with sufficient confidence that we can know that across the whole genome, we can have these five nines, these 99.99% accuracy for each of our, our variant calls. Um, and I think um, there are some areas of the genome that we can do that with more confidence than others. And perhaps when we talk about other uh, sequencing technologies in a few minutes from now, um, you can explain how, um, whilst it was generally considered we, that we, we had sequenced the whole genome um, back at the beginning of the millennium, that in fact, um, these darker regions of the genome were only really finally completed um, last year, this kind of telomere to telomere um, achievement that, that was 
only really uh, only landed in 2021. But let's let's just pause there for a moment. Um, we'll, we'll return to that point. I just want to give um, a, a sense of the different types of variation that that your lab track and that we then try to analyze through variant calling. Um, there are kind of four types of variation that we we try to assess um, from simple simple SNVs to, to complicated structural variation. Could, could you just go through them and try to kind of characterize briefly what what they are? Yeah, I mean, we, we put them into separate pots, but in fact, it's just a continuum of variation. And these start from single base variation that we've talked about a little bit, where um, one individual might have a C at position 10 and someone else might have a G at position 10. That may have a functional consequence. Uh, it may be within the, the really important coding parts of the, of the genes themselves, or it, it may be in some kind of uh, hinterland of the genome, which uh, might be in the middle of a telomeric region and might not have any consequence. They, they can be larger. They can be two, three, four bases. They can be uh, small deletions where a couple of bases or, or more are not present. Uh, or you could have um, uh, duplications, regions that are duplicated. And, and they can get larger and larger. And at some point, we start to call those structural variants. People have different definitions of when those those kind of that size boundary changes. But once you get above kind of 10 to 20 base pairs, people start to talk about structural variants. Certainly structural variants can be very large. They can encompass in, in, in some cases um, hundreds of thousands of bases. Uh, some of the structural variants represent a different order of the genome, so not necessarily pieces missing. Uh, so, for example, a large fragment could be inverted. It could be flipped around. So it's actually, if you could take 20,000 bases, pull it out of the genome, turn it around and put it back in. And that can have, again, quite serious consequences or potentially it, it could actually have no um, functional consequence at all. So it, it can be quite challenging. There are other areas where you can get increasing copy numbers of a certain part of the sequence. So it can be duplicated a number of times. And again, those regions can be very small or they can be very large. And in fact, in, in cancers in particular, some of those can extend to entire chromosomes and, and in fact, even entire genomes. And you can have a phenomenon uh, called polyploidy or increased ploidy where you actually have additional copies of your genome within a, within a cell. So thank you for that. That's answer through the, all the different types of variation. And of course, this was a massive simplification, but you talked a little bit about single nucleotide variants, things like the C to A transversion, which are often associated with, uh, with smoking and driven by smoking, benzopyrene transversion. You talked about insertions and deletions, copy number variation, and then large scale structural variation, which could be things like fusions and translocations. And uh, so now maybe we can return back to that point uh, that you were just raising earlier, which is because you shear these genomes into very short slices, uh, maybe you can explain why that makes it difficult with sequencing by synthesis technology to um, to get good visibility of, of structural variation. Yeah, absolutely. So there are, there are many regions of the genome. I mean, the, we, we have to bear in mind we, we're dealing with an incredibly simple code here that only encompasses four different uh, characters. And so in, in such a huge, vast expanse of DNA, you are bound to get regions 
where those characters are reproduced in exactly the same order. And in fact, the nature of some areas of our genome is that it is highly repetitive and we have uh, lots of uh, copies of the same sequence, one after the other. Uh, some good examples of that are regions around the centromeres, that's the middle of the chromosomes where they're kind of held together. And, and also the telomeres, uh, the ends of the chromosomes where the, the, these repetitive sequences may afford um, certain kind of um, functional protection to the, to the chromosomes and may have an association with cancer, with ageing, or with many other things. They are extremely difficult, uh, in fact, impossible in many circumstances, to, to rebuild um, using short read sequencing, because if, if you have a repetitive sequence of more than the length of the piece that you sequence, you can't put it in exactly the right place. It's a bit like having a jigsaw puzzle with lots of blue sky in it, and uh, the pieces of the puzzle are exactly the same shape so you simply don't know where they go the the other issue is actually a lot worse than that because it's like having 30 copies of the same puzzle so you can end up building a sky which is 30 times as large as it actually really is and and that's a real phenomenon that's known it's known that in many cases you have to collapse down these repetitive regions because because you're sequencing lots of copies, you end up making them much larger than they really are. Thank you, Greg. So I think that's probably about as far as we could take the discussion of sequencing by synthesis without actually looking at diagrams. But any listeners who are interested in sequencing by synthesis, there's a lot of great papers online. And in fact, on the Illumina website, they explain it very clearly. And there's some great videos that show how that works as well. Um, so Looking at structural variation is one of, kind of the fundamental limits of short read sequencing and also just uh, um, getting an even coverage of the whole genome is challenging as well, which is why um, we at Genomics England have started to look at some novel technologies, uh, which are, are often called long read and methylation sequencing technologies uh, to overcome those challenges. Um, and there are several companies out there. There's Oxford Nanopore, there's Pat Bio, and in fact, uh, Illumina have recently themselves jumped into the long read uh, sequencing race as well. Um, Genomics England today has a, um, a, a funded program to explore cancer um, using um, Oxford Nanopore, long read and methylation sequencing technology. And the reason we're focusing in on cancer is because we believe, and it's yet to be proven, that structural variation does drive a lot of uh, cancer oncogenesis. So perhaps we could have um, a, a quick discussion, Greg, about how long-read sequencing with Oxford Nanopore differs. Um, conceptually, how is that different to sequencing by synthesis? Okay, so at the very highest level, I think the easiest way to uh, describe the differences, and it allows us to put some of the issues uh, in context, is that the short-read sequencing approaches are essentially chemistry, and they are, generally speaking, a series of chemical reactions which are replicating, duplicating, or copying existing pieces of DNA. Long-read sequencing, and certainly in the case of Oxford Nanopore that we're working with a lot, is more biology. It's not chemistry. It's, it's native sequencing. It's sequencing by, by observation. We're, we're not generating copies of anything and we're not using anything synthetic what we're doing is we're taking the native dna molecule that's actually from the cell and we're reading the sequence of, of that molecule and that uh, comes with it some 
tremendous, enormous benefits. It also comes with it some huge challenges because DNA is, as I say, a very simple molecule in terms of the fact it only has four essential bases associated with it, but it also is a complex molecule because it is also modified and added to but using external modifications, external uh, moieties that uh, make it functional in different contexts. And, and so you've already met, mentioned methylation, Parker, and that, that's perhaps the, the most foremost um, epigenetic modification that we know about. We know a lot about methylation. What we don't know is how that influences the way in which cancers develop and the way in which cancer is controlled, uh, or even in many cases, in the way in which a normal cell is controlled. But we do know that methylation has an impact on the way in which genes are transcribed or made from the DNA. And uh, so, so um, methylation in itself is a, is a, a complex question. And this is involving chem- chemical modification of those four bases that I, I believe they're often referred, they're increasingly referred to as the fifth and the sixth base, five um, methyl C and hydroxymethylation, which kind of up, up and down regulate gene expression, particularly from the cytosine in, in the four bases. Um, but before we go in, into methylation and, and how how you read that using long reads of of the modification of the base C, um, let's go let, let's go back to that kind of core difference. So, when sequencing by synthesis or short read sequencing, you're slicing up the genome into tens of thousands of pieces. With long read sequencing, it's more like threading the needle through a thread, isn't it? You take the long strand of DNA and you pass it through this pore, which is why we have in the name Oxford Nanopore. Could, could you just explain how, how in practical terms that happens? Because it sounds uh, easy on, on a PowerPoint slide, but to, in, in real life, how on earth do you get a, a nanoscale kind of string of DNA to thread through a pore? Yeah, so you essentially uh, create a, a synthetic membrane and you have what are actually uh, biological pores, so, so it's their protein pores, uh, they've been modified, but they are essentially the, the kinds of pores you would find in um, cell membranes in nature. You generate or you use a, a couple of proteins to, to anchor, to allow the, your DNA to get anchored on that pore, so it gets pulled to the pore, and also then to unwind the DNA and to pull the DNA through. The DNA gets pulled through um, through uh, potential difference through the, the pore, and as it goes through the pore, it disrupts the, the electrical conductance across that pore. And so you can get a readout in, in terms of current or in terms of uh, potential difference in voltage across the pore as the DNA is traveling through. And, and that is exactly how the technology works. And, and the electrical readouts, uh, they, they've kind of traditionally been using current, but there's a switch potentially to using voltage and they have to be interpreted because as the bases move through, the bases are slightly different sizes. So they will give a slightly different shift in that electrical signal. And that potentially allows you to elucidate the the sequence of the bases going through any individual pore. And by stacking a lot of pores in the membrane, and having a readout from each one, 
then you can sequence a lot of uh, fragments of DNA at the same time. Now, the great thing about this is that the pore is completely agnostic to the size of the DNA or the length of the DNA that's traveling through it. It's only interested in what's going through the pore at the time. And so with this, these technologies, with oxford nanopore technologies, fragments um, of over one million bases long have been pulled through the pores and read. And that allows you, obviously, to assemble genomes and, and regions of the genome that have been hitherto impossible using uh, sugary technologies. And Greg, how does that read length of a, of a kind of million bases compare to short read read lengths? Well, so I should maybe put that more in context. So you, the, so I think the, the world record at the moment is about 4 million bases has been pulled through. But generally speaking, most of the people who are using this technology are using fragments around tens of thousands of bases long. That's uh, at least 100 times longer than the length of the fragments you get from shortly sequencing. And, and I have to say that um, from someone who's been sequencing for 30 years, the, the first time I looked at a, a plot that contained uh, Oxford nanopore sequence reads, it was just completely mind-blowing because we have always worked in with, with fragments that are a few hundred bases long. And, and to, to move to a scale which is 100 times larger, in, in one fell swoop. It's a bit like going from diesel cars to electric cars in, in, in one go. And, you know, the technology is just so different. Well, I thought you might have said it's a bit like going from one of those 10,000-piece uh, puzzle boards down to a kind of children's puzzle that only has 10 or 12 pieces in it. It's, there are just many less, uh, many fewer um, reads to reassemble back into the human genome, which um, uh, not only... Um, allows us to call with higher confidence, but also also allows us to to actually see natively these structural variations that were kind of hidden by the, the short read le- length of a, of a short read limitation. Is, is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, that, that's very fair to say. So you can span them, but sometimes you don't even need to span them. You get good amounts of sequence on either side of a junction that might be broken in the genome or have moved and changed so they're so much easier to to map and confirm if you're working with short reads which are only you know 150 bases long uh, it, it's sometimes very difficult to identify these kind of breakpoint junctions because you just don't have enough sequence either side to be able to confirm where that's come from Okay, so long read sequencing, these negatively charged pores which pull these DNA strands through them. And I believe that natively they would pull these strands through at about a million bases per second, but they, they apply a, a molecular break to slow that down so that we can read these bases sequentially and, and with high fidelity. Uh, produces these longer, elegant um, uh, reads of, of bases which we can then uh, translate um, uh, similarly uh, to the reassembled uh, genome from short read sequencing, 
uh, into a variant call against the reference to human genome. Uh, so we are doing that uh, with cancer patients uh, in our lab today. We're still in validation stage, so we're not yet doing this clinically in the NHS. Uh, but we do hope um, that Genomics England will be able to operate with both modalities of technology, short reads and long reads, which are in many cases very, very complementary to each other and provide a, a great new set of tools in, in the armory for understanding the um, at high resolution, the kind of the drivers of of diseases of the genome like cancer. Yeah, th- that's a really important message, actually, Parker. At the, the moment, the, the degree of development of the two technologies, short read and long read, mean that Personally, I think they they sit alongside each other much more happily than in competition with each other. And and certainly in terms of applications at the moment, um, the the, the accuracy of Illumina is is so high that for precision calling of of short variants, it it is the number one go-to. On the other hand, you don't get a methylation readout from Illumina sequencing, not unless you go through the torturous route of bisulfite sequencing. And you also have only limited resolution in certain regions of the genome and structural variants can be very difficult to determine. And the other thing, the other, other really key thing I think to remember is that these are two, as I hope we've made clear, very different technologies. They work in fundamentally in completely different ways. So they are, to, to all um, effects, orthogonal technologies. So if you identify a, a change or a variant using both technologies on the genome, then you can be pretty damn sure that you've, you've kind of self-validated that uh, variant uh, right there in those experiments. And um, just to, I suppose, refer back to the tantalizing comment I made about the finally we have this uh, telomere to telomere um, human genome sequence that happened last year. Uh, Maybe you could kind of finish this section on long read sequencing by describing uh, what what did happen and where it happened last year. Yes. So um, a consortium was, was put together. It used a whole combination of different sequencing approaches and basically chromosome by chromosome. Uh, generated very high coverage assemblies of those regions. And that's been taken further forward this year. There are a number of consortia who are looking at producing telomere to telomere diploid genomes. So the the, uh, initial telomere to telomere was on essentially a kind of haploid cell line. But the, the real key is to produce good diploid genomes. So we all carry two copies of pretty much all of our chromosomes, unless we're a man, in which case uh, we only have one X chromosome. But in order to get really good resolution on on real individuals' genomes, we need to be able to generate great diploid genomes. And we need to be able to do that whether we are of Kenyan ancestry or Norwegian ancestry or from wherever. And those genomes really could be fundamentally quite different. Uh, and, and so to be able to do that, we need to be able to have a really solid backbone and also high quality uh, variant calling. Uh, and so, again, I think both technologies, and, and just to be clear, both technologies are still being used for these telomere to telomere assemblies. It's not long read alone that's being used. And there are additional technologies which generate digital readouts. So there's uh, BioNano, which um, 
There's also a very interesting technology which produces a kind of digital fingerprint across the chromosome at, at high resolution. So there are lots of really exciting technologies. And we haven't talked much about PacBio either, who also have a really high accuracy uh, approach to the wrong read sequencing, which is of great value. And we are exploring Pacific Biosciences or Pat Bio sequencing in red as he is right, right at the moment. And that's another program that you're working on, Greg. So I'd say you a real challenge, which is to explain in as layers possible language um, how, how sequencing works. And I think you've done a really admirable job of explaining the journey all the way from the surgery or the biopsy from the patient all the way to the, kind of the file types that come off the back of the um, types of sequences that we're using at Genomics England. And so thank you very much for doing that. I think uh, people that want to know more detail about it, there is clearly a lot more detail that you can read about online or you can get in touch with us at Genomics England. Uh, we very much see part of our mandate to educate. Uh, so we'd be happy to do that. And uh, maybe if I could just um, finish this discussion with two last questions, Greg. So what are you excited about for sequencing in the future? You've mentioned that you've been sequencing genomes for 30 years, but in many ways we're still... Uh, at the beginning of this revolution, um, what do you see in the next decade? I guess two things that uh, I think are really key. One is that we really get genome sequencing embedded in our healthcare culture. I think it's really key. And I, and I think you know a lot of that is breaking down a lot of the myths about you know, the dangers of, of genome sequencing. I think we have to be very careful and we have to make sure that we have you know, the most comprehensive dialogue universally around that. But I, I really think it, it, it can be key if we can embed it. So one of the programmes that Genomics England is investing is the newborn programme, as you know, Parker, and I think um, that could be a, a real trigger to making sure we have comprehensive debate on this and also to starting to see the value of having... I, I think a lifetime genome. I think, you know, if I was born again now, I would, I would get my genome sequence and I would, as far as possible, carry it around with me. But it, it's about education and, and about public dialogue. That, that's the first thing. The second thing would be that we find a way to combine all the different ge genomic technologies that we currently use. They're still used rather a lot in isolation to provide the best test for, for a patient. And that might be combining proteomic analysis, transcriptomic analysis, long read sequencing, short read sequencing. I think we need to look at, at the best ways of combining those, those uh, technologies together and, and stop worrying about them being competing and thinking about them being complementary. Well, thank you for that, Greg. I mean, you certainly uh, painted an exciting picture of the future. And as you've mentioned, uh, we do have this newborn uh, sequencing program at Genomics England, which will be the subject of many future uh, G-Word podcasts. And uh, England is hoping to be one of the first countries that sequences all newborn children, of course, with the consent of the patient. And we've just recently been funded to do a 200,000 baby trial in that space. And we're also funded to um, sequence diverse genomes. Um, and we have a large program in place to make sure that we are collecting and sequencing and understanding the genomes of people from diverse ancestries. And that has already been the subject of many G-Word podcasts that you can find on this, this same series. Um, and maybe the last thing that I should mention um, is that, Greg, all of this, of course, is possible because of the deep partnership that you and Genomics England have formed with the NHS. And now uh, patients are routinely coming 
um, through your sequencing lab who are referred by clinical geneticists in rare disease and oncologists in cancer in a range of cancers that are getting whole genome sequencing. And that's available nationally uh, referred from oncologists through the genomic lab hubs in the seven locations in England. And it, and it really is a, a landmark um, achievement that the country um, has delivered not just the technology, but also the clinical governance and kind of tissue pathway infrastructure to do that on a national scale. So I know it's something that you and the rest of us at Genomics England are very proud of. So very, just one last question for you, Greg. Um, this was a terrific discussion. I really enjoyed it today. If you could choose for me to interview uh, one, one person of your choice on the G word in the future, who would that be? The person I would most like you to uh, podcast, but it's impossible, would be my old mentor, Sidney Brenner. He would have been an absolute scream to have, to have on. Unfortunately, that, that's not possible. Another person who I used to have great fun with um, and who's a, a really interesting raconteur and was totally involved in the setting up of EBI, the European Bioinformatics Institute, and, and is literally the, the kind of king of Drosophila genetics and genomics. That would be um, Mike Ashburner, Professor Mike Ashburner. So you should see if you can get him on. That would be interesting. I will reach out to Mike and uh, tell him that you say hi. Thank you so much for that and, and for your time, Greg. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of, of genomics and how it comes into the mainstream of healthcare and society. Now, Genomics England have very recently, just in the last week, launched a new website. Uh, so you can come and uh, look at our website and see all of the activities that we have going on there. And of course, um, if there are other topics that you'd like us to discuss on this podcast, please do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Remember, please to subscribe to the G Word on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. And that if you've enjoyed listening, please do give us a five star review. That really helps other people find out about our series. So we really appreciate your support. And Greg, I appreciate your time. So until next time, thank you for listening to the G Word. <laughs>